welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I am Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The February 2022 issue is devoted to articles about nutrition assessment. Today, we want to focus on a new research paper that's sponsored by Aspen. It is entitled, Update on Use of Enteral and Parenteral Nutrition in Hospitalized Patients with a Diagnosis of Malnutrition in the United States. So joining me today are two of the co-authors, Jay Mortallo and Wendy Phillips. Jay Mortallo is a clinical practice specialist for Aspen and professor emeritus at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Wendy Phillips is also from Ohio. She's a regional vice president for Morrison Healthcare and she's located in Cleveland, Ohio. So thank you, Wendy and Jay, for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Before we start our discussion, I'd like to ask our guests if they have any disclosures on this topic that they'd like to share. Wendy, any disclosures for you? I do not. Thank you. Jay, do you have any disclosures? No. Thank you. So I want to kind of start at the beginning since this is a research project. Let's look at the aims and the objectives. So Jay, can you kind of explain to our readers what was the purpose of this research project? And, and why is this research important for our Aspen members and our NCP readers? Uh, this project is a, really an ongoing project to really kind of look at and get some answers to questions we've had for a long time uh, in relationship to what the frequency of malnutrition is, uh, how enteral and parental nutrition are utilized, and uh, how does that relate back to outcomes? Uh, and it's, I think, been fortuitous for us to be able to find some databases that can give us some information related to hospitalized patients that we can use to get some answers to those questions and then use that information for our members and our patients to answer a lot of the questions that we think that are gaps in therapies or uh, practices that might be uh, better to give us some strategies to help improve the resources we provide from Aspen for them to take care of their patients that are malnourished. So Jay, you mentioned databases. So one name and I turn it back to you. And can you explain how you as the author group went about collecting the data for analysis and why did you choose those uh, two data sources? Sure. So we use two sets of national data sets. The first set that I'll talk about is the Hospital Cost and Utilization Project which is referred to as HCUP. It's a nationally representative sample of hospitalizations. And when that's weighted appropriately in the manner that we used for our analysis, it's representative of hospitalizations throughout the US. Within this database, we use two sets of data. First was the nationwide inpatient sample. And this contains discharge level data for inpatient hospital stays. We also use the Nationwide Readmissions Database, which contains information about hospital readmissions. So both of those sets of data are part of the HCUP. The second set of a database that we used was derived from Aspen's Value Project, and this analyzed Medicare Parts A and B claims data for fee-for-service beneficiaries. So just as a brief reminder, Medicare Part A covers inpatient stays while Medicare Part B primarily provides coverage for outpatient services. So using this data set, we were able to not only look at data from the hospital stay, also look at available data from the Medicare database for two weeks post-discharge. So we, we did this for a variety of reasons. Some strengths of using this data, the NIS, 
the nationwide inpatient sample that's part of HCAT. It's the largest national all-payer inpatient care database. So it's very frequently used in population-based health research and it's updated annually. So it enables us to look at coded diagnostic trends over time, as Jay was mentioning, really looking at where we're going with the coded diagnosis of malnutrition and the use of EN and PN. Now, while this strength of our research revolves around using this data set, it can also be one of the limitations because the validity of the data that we analyzed is so highly dependent on the accuracy of coding. And we all know that malnutrition, unfortunately, is significantly undercoded for US hospitalizations. Another thing to keep in mind is the NIS provides information about hospital encounters, not individual patients. So since one patient might have been admitted multiple times throughout the same year, we're looking really not at an individual patient, but at each hospitalization throughout the year. So again, great data set to look at. It's a, an industry standard to look at data from these two data sets, which is why we have chosen to look at that and trend it over time. So Jay, can you summarize for our listeners the main findings of this study and what you found in this analysis of these data? Yeah, and then we really just can simply say that in the main findings, the really we found in this year's assessment an improved frequency of coding for the diagnosis of malnutrition. Uh, so that was uh, of interest to us. Uh, but when we, uh, and it's demonstrated in the figure for the paper as well, we didn't see an associated increase in the utilization of enteral or parental nutrition with that trend, uh, which led us to discuss in our discussion a lot of potential reasons why that had occurred, but also tying that into some of the information we gleaned from our value project, some of the data of which was published in previous NCP articles. It really showed in the in the therapeutic areas of that we assessed in the value project what might be or seem to be you know really an underuse of enteral and parental nutrition it makes us wonder whether uh, like the publications that we've put out in relationship to the appropriate use of enteral and parental nutrition are really reaching the masses of the population of clinicians that need to know them and, and put them into practice. Uh, so uh, that's what I think one of the interesting findings we had from that that group and tied it into what our thoughts are is uh, uh, considering as a summary, a low utilization of enteral and parental nutrition based on what we might expect. And I think then the third area really comes not only just from the data from this year's analysis, but the trend over time. Uh, and looking at the database, even though with the limitations that Wendy had mentioned, you can still look at comparative groups. And in, in all the years we've done it, we've looked at the coded malnourished group versus the non-malnourished group. And in all of those cases and assessments, we found that the outcomes in the malnourished groups are consistent. They're older. Uh, they have longer length of stay. They, uh, their stay is associated with a higher cost. Uh, and they have a higher ad readmission rate as well as a higher mortality rate. Uh, so I think we find that that's something that's uh, a concept or facts that have been tested through time that uh, maybe we need to use as, uh, uh, again, uh, efforts to see what we can do about uh, those trends in the nutrition that's provided to patients in the hospital. And Wendy, it kind of hinted at this, but what would you say 
of the findings that you got, which ones were you expecting to find? And then on the other hand, what were some of the unexpected findings? Sure, so in table two, it describes some of this in detail for people who want to refer back to the paper. So we did expect to find, as we did, that patients receiving EN or PN were likely to have a coded diagnosis of malnutrition. Conversely, the unexpected finding is how few of the patients that did have a CDM or a coded diagnosis of malnutrition were receiving EN or PN. So we'll talk a little bit at the end of this podcast about what the implications of that are. One thing I was particularly surprised about is when you compare the data. So we're comparing data from 2010, 2013, and 2018. So compared to 2010, in 2013 and 18, there was a smaller percentage of discharges where patients were receiving EN or PN. It wouldn't probably surprise any of our listeners or our readers that patients with a coded diagnosis of malnutrition or CDM, when they were readmitted, the fifth highest diagnosis grouping associated with the readmission was the miscellaneous disorders of nutrition, metabolism, fluid, and electrolytes. So these patients with the CDM who were admitted into that diagnosis-related grouping were the ones that were requiring EN or PN. So as Jay mentioned, the rate of CDM continues to rise over time. However, the use of EN and PN is not rising concurrently. So Wendy, what do you think or which factors do you think contributed to the results of the study? There is a significant undercoding for diagnoses in the US, including diagnoses such as malnutrition. There is also potentially undercoding for therapies such as ENMPN. So, if the diagnosis for the therapy is not coded, then it would not be visible in these, the data sets that we use to do this analysis. So, that's probably a primary reason for the lower utilization results than what we were expecting. It's also possible that there's an underutilization of the aggressive nutrition therapies for EN and PN. Another thing that's becoming even more and more relevant in these last couple of years is the focus on moving care to the outpatient setting, which is leading to those shorter hospital lengths of stays. So you have less time for EN or PN to be started on the inpatient basis, and the potential for provider concern for less oversight and therefore less confidence in starting or maintaining EN or PN in the outpatient setting. There's been significant amino acid shortages, especially in 2018, which was the studied year. And in addition to the amino acid shortages in 2018, there was shortages of other PN components over the past decade. So certainly that could be leading to a less than expected utilization of parental nutrition. So Jay, going forward, what should we as nutrition support specialists do or what action should we take now that we have this information? I think there's a few things we can take away from this data and, and looking at our discussion about the data as well. The one thing that seems to be 
of concern to me and we deal with uh, a lot related to and I think Wendy mentioned the transitions of care and length of stay. There seems to be that disconnect in the documentation with the nutrition assessment where the nutrition expert has made the assessment and the diagnosis of malnutrition doesn't reach other areas uh, in, in regards to the chart as a result does not get included in any transitions of care. I know that's something that we've talked about with the uh, results of uh, our Ohio uh, Malnutrition Commission that uh, we put recommendations back to the Ohio Department of Health with as one of the focus areas for us to deal with uh, in the community is uh, getting that going. And uh, Wendy's notes about the uh, under coding of malnutrition really just kind of emphasized to me that, that that disconnect continues to be there. Because if you don't get it coded, then it doesn't get transferred with the patients to outside facilities and other areas. And if the length of stay in the hospital is shorter, that means much more of the care, patient's care is going to be outside the hospital. Uh, and if those clinicians that are doing the follow-up care for the patients there don't know that there's nutrition issues going on, they can't address them. And maybe that's one of the factors that's affecting our readmission rates in malnourished patients. So the other thing is the low utilization of enteral and parental nutrition is, is of concern. And one of the thoughts and discussions we have based on our experience is maybe the sub barriers is just the general acceptance of EN and PN by the clinicians in the field that they avoid it. Uh, and it may go back to the thing of basically their, their training. If they've not been well-trained in nutrition and comfortable in providing the therapy, they're not going to prescribe it. Uh, so those are some of the areas that we think about. What actions can our members or are the people that are reading this paper do? One is you know, you're reading the paper, you're becoming educated, you're the nutrition expert. Maybe you can help us deal with the large portion of health professionals that are inadequately trained to provide nutrition services and educate them. The other is, you know, how can we make sure that the nutrition assessment and diagnosis of malnutrition does reach the documentation so it's then transferred to these reports so we can assure that the higher rate is, is being captured? The same thing for EN and PN. And then I think the other thing is, how do you identify and resolve the barriers to the use of EN and PN? And I think Wendy had a good point. If the length of stay is shorter, it, you, you know, you're just barely getting the nutrition risk screening done before the patient leaves the hospital. How can you establish enteral or parental nutrition in the patient if it's needed? And it perhaps might be the fact of also not just getting the therapy started, but also finding out whether there is uh, adequate resources to be done in the community uh, and who's going to be taking care of those resources. Uh, so uh, that can be the other area that uh, would be something the clinicians can work with both on the inpatient and the outpatient basis is how do we improve those transitions of care so that uh, the clinicians and the healthcare systems are more comfortable in transitioning patients uh, that need this therapy to be transitioned uh, out on those areas. I think those are all good points for us to think about. And before we close, do either of you have any additional comments that you want to share with our listeners? I think you've seen me allude to what looking at this from my lens, we're working more with public policy and advocacy in the areas and really just focusing on how do we improve access of our patients to quality nutrition care? And I already mentioned the professional education and how do we get our clinicians adequately trained, meaning that they get good nutrition in their didactic curriculum, 
It's followed through with their experiential experiences through their didactic uh, coursework and then followed through with residency. And that's threaded through. So people, when they leave, uh, find themselves confident in that area uh, and then can hopefully better utilize our recommendations from Aspen on the appropriate use of ventral and parental nutrition. The other is, you know, how do we make sure that our patients have access to qualified nutrition experts? Um, we've been focusing on the uh, medical nutrition therapy bill that's uh, been submitted to legislation to improve that access for Medicare patients uh, beyond just renal failure patients, diabetic patients, uh, because we do know that uh, other patients deserve that as well. One of the notes that I thought about as well, and I think it came through in some of our discussion of the paper is you know, we focus on enteral nutrition and parental nutrition, but one of the larger areas uh, in our patient population is uh, oral nutrition support or uh, the medical nutrition products that patients can use as a supplement to a diet that might not be adequate that they can tolerate. We've uh, continually had issues with regards to getting that recognized as even a therapy for our patients, not just nutrition, and how do we uh, uh, get that access? And we know that there's no documentation of that use in any of the uh, hospital charts. So how do we get that documented in our charts so that can then also be pulled in this data so we can look at it the same way in relationship to its use in a person that's coded for malnutrition and its associated outcomes that you might be able to take a look at. And I think I've already noted my thoughts with regards to the length of stay. I really wonder uh, if uh, there's a systems issue there related to the competence of health professionals in all health areas to take care of antral and parental nutrition, and that communication of what's needed for that patient is adequate enough to uh, call for. And so as we see our healthcare trending towards more and more outpatients and community settings, I think we need to think about our patients that are at risk or have coded malnutrition as individuals that might need to have a more robust system and known competent practitioners to be able to care for them, irrespective of what site that they're being cared for. Well, thank you, Wendy and Jay, for sharing your expertise with our listeners today. I really invite our listeners to learn more about this research paper, as well as review some of the other papers on nutrition assessment that are in the February 2022 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you, Wendy and Jay. Welcome. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thank you.